You're listening to the world famous Chick Whisperer podcast. And now, here's your host, Scott McKay. All right, all right. How's it going, everyone? Welcome to another episode of the world famous Chick Whisperer podcast. As always, I'm Scott McKay coming at you from San Antonio, Texas. I have an incredibly interesting and different show for you guys today. I want to introduce you to a new friend of mine who will be my co-host for the show. His name is David Murrow. And among other wonderful books that this very well-spoken guy has written is one called Why Men Hate Going to Church. And what I anticipate today is a no-holds-barred conversation on why that is And we're just going to stop hiding from this issue because I think a lot of people just want to avoid it. For some reason, I'm thinking a lot of you guys out there are thinking, you know, why don't I go to church? Why am I so against this thing? It's not like I don't believe in God or, you know, if I don't believe in God, why don't I believe in God? Yet the whole spirituality thing is something that a lot of guys sweep under the rug. So we're going to hit it with a big heavy hammer today. David Murrow from Anchorage, Alaska. How's it going, man? And welcome. Good to be with you, Scott. You know, uh, I got to tell you something. As we record this, it's mid-August, and the last time my wife and I, Emily, were in Alaska, it was just absolutely gorgeous this time of year. So Mm -hmm. I'm incredibly jealous of you at this very moment. Well, um, I'm jealous of you. I'm from Texas, and I love the Mexican food, so... Oh, yeah. It's pretty hard to find good burritos up there. It's not the uh, cornucopia you guys have down in San Antonio, let me tell you. But you know what? If you want some nice grilled halibut, man, you're in. I'm in the play. Yeah, this is the place to be. That's right. Really good IPAs up there, too. For yep. what it's worth. Yep, for what it's worth. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really pleased to have you on this show because you're a man of faith, yet you're not a pastor, you're not a preacher, you're not clergy, and you make that very clear in your Amazon biography. Yet you write these books that really, man, hit you square between the eyes with this whole idea of men and faith nowadays. What has inspired you to take this on as a cause and really get you thinking about this so much? Well, I've been a Christian for 40 years, and about 15 years ago, I noticed that whenever Christians gather, there are always more women than men, and the women seem to get it, and the men seem to be kind of dragged there by their wives. So my background is in television. I'm a TV producer and writer, and... Uh, you know, one day I'm just sitting there in church and I looked around my church and I saw the pastor up there wearing this nice robe with this multicolored stole over his shoulders and there's flowers and a lace doily on the communion table and quilted banners all over the sanctuary. And in a moment of clarity, I thought, you know, if my church was a TV show, it would be on the Oprah network. I mean, everything about our church, from the way it's decorated to the ministries to it offers to the things that you can and can't say it's really kind of designed to appeal to a grandma, that middle-aged and older woman who is the core volunteer and core giver. And we've created this culture where she's very comfortable, but where we kind of drive men out the doors because there's really nothing for a young man in, in most churches today. You know, across the board, men and women, it seems like the more liturgical churches, like your Episcopalians and Presbyterians of the world, you know, like PCUSA, if we're going to get technical. Yeah. Um, Lutherans, even Catholics. 
they're losing their congregations because they refuse to bend and twist and flex with modern times. I mean, even the Olympics are going to allow skateboarding in 2020, but it seems like the church is still into flowers and lacy doilies and liturgy. You know, that's the thing. These established churches are asking the wrong question. They're saying, where have all the young people gone? Where are the young people? The question they should be asking is, what happened to the men? Because a lot of them became peace churches and feminist churches in the 60s and 70s. A lot of these liberal churches were early in that kind of that second wave feminism and this idea that the things of men were bad. And you were naturally suspicious of, you know, hunting and fishing and logging and oil extraction and uh, war and the things that men do. There was just kind of this blanket condemnation of anything that men did. And so men started to kind of quietly exit. And then the other things that these established churches did is they opened their doors to female elders. And let me tell you, men have a disease called she-will-take-care-of-it-itis. And once a woman starts taking care of something, men forget completely about it. And so when they opened their doors to female leadership, female elders, female pastors, the men said, great, the women got this covered. I'm going to let them take care of the religious box. I'm going to go golf. I'm going to go work my butt off at work. You know, I'm going to go do things the men do, and I'm going to let the women take care of religion. And so as a result, we saw this decline of men. When the men leave, the older men leave, the younger men leave, then the young women leave, and your church is a bunch of grandmas scratching each other on the back and saying, oh, this is so wonderful, but we wish there was more young people. And you know, the reason they left is because the men disengaged a generation ago. I think that is a fascinating observation you just made about how men respond to women taking over the positions of leadership in the church. Because I think your knee-jerk reaction, if you're an interloper or just an innocent bystander watching this, is, well, you know, the men couldn't handle the women being in charge, and it's sexism and this, that, and the other. But you know what? That's the deeper issue. You just nailed it. That is exactly correct. As soon as my wife has something handled, I'm hands-off. She's got it. I can move on to something else. Yeah, Scott, let me give you an example. Like when my, sure. kid, when my kids were little, my wife took care of their shots, you know, their inoculations or doctor visits. She had the control of the um, school portfolio. I only vaguely knew what was going on with them at school. And that's not because I didn't care. It's because I knew my wife had it well covered. And I was confident in her ability to manage those things. I knew there'd be groceries in the house. I didn't worry about groceries because I knew my wife, she enjoyed going to the store. She took care of that. There was food. I didn't worry about those things. What's happened in the church, especially in these liberal churches, is they've opened all their doors to female leadership. And the men are just, it's not like we're mad. Or it's not like we're, oh, you know, those women, blah, blah, blah. No, it's just like, thank God, these very competent women have got the religious portfolio covered. I'm going to go do something else. Let them do it. Hallelujah. So, you know, the feminists have got it wrong. It's not like we're all thinking, oh, these women have taken away. No, we're like, ladies, take it. We're going to go do other things we want to do. You're exactly right. That's it. Because, you know, in my life, in my marriage, I do the same thing. I trust my wife to take care of what she takes care of. And if I'm left to take care of it, it's like, oh, my gosh. Even if it's a simple thing, I'm like, how do I do this? I've got to go figure this out. It's like web development. This thing that I need done with my website, whatever it is, would take me two years to figure out. I call my website guy and he's like, yeah, send me five pounds sterling and I'll get it done for you in the next half hour. It becomes like that. So once the women have taken over church, it's not like I'm such a sexist that I can't handle a woman being my pastor because she's a woman. It's just that's how the masculine deals with feminine taking over certain things. 
like I like to talk about, David, it's like the men are the providers and the protectors at the macro scale. We're like the daddy eagle flying around the nest trying to make sure no predators come in. You know, we are the providers and protectors of feminine gifts. Meanwhile, in the nest, the woman's the one who pads the nest and keeps the nest nice and feeds the kids. And she's free to do that because we're taking care of all the quote unquote dangerous stuff outside. So once a woman is taking care of that nest in the form of a local congregation, we're hands off. So how much of this then is conscious on our part where we said, you know, I'm just going to skip church from now on. And how much of it kind of was just us almost unconsciously saying, well, they got it. So what need do they have for me? You know, Sigmund Freud famously said that the human psyche is like an iceberg, you know, 90% of it's under the waterline and we don't see it, but it's there. And I think men's motivations for withdrawing from church are like that hidden part of the iceberg. You know, we walk into church and we see the flowers and the quilts. We see all the old ladies. They ask us to hold hands and sing love songs to Jesus. And so we just kind of get uncomfortable at a gut level. It's not that we can put our fingers on it and say, wow, that church was so feminized. You know, we don't do that. It's just like we walk in and we can tell. It's like walking into a fabric store or walking into a lady's boutique. You know that feeling you get like, I don't belong here? I think we send that same vibe to men when they walk into church and they respond the same way. Hey, I'm going to leave as soon as I can and I'm going to leave this to my wife. Now, the shame about all this is that the truth of the faith should not lead us in that direction, correct? No. If you actually read what's in the Bible, it's extremely manly stuff. We've put this Christian nice guy veneer on it because that makes Christians manageable. And, you know, what pastor really, really wants his congregants acting like Jesus, you know, tipping over the missions fundraising table in a fit of anger and calling out, sin, you brood of vipers. And it's it's just a lot easier to manage a church full of lambs than a church full of lions. And, you know, I can't blame pastors. They got to manage. They've got to keep the institution moving forward. But, you know, there's a time and a place for gentle Jesus, meek and mild. But, you know, men just need to be reacquainted with Christ, the Lion of Judah. And, you know, that's been instrumental in growing my faith, just realizing what a bold man he really was and what he really demands of his followers. The irony there, of course, is you have to dig in to the actual meat and potatoes of faith rather than just going to church and and being like the frozen chosen on Sunday morning, just going into church and feeling like you've done your time, which I would argue is another whole piece of this. The more boring your church is and the less relevant it is to your actual life, the more you feel like you're doing what uh, some Christians would call buying fire insurance. You know, hey, I've done my thing on Sunday morning. Now God's not going to send me to hell. Which actually brings me back to what you just said about this whole idea of if the pastors can control their congregations, then, you know, that makes everything, I'm going to use the word, a lot more sanitary within the church. Well, yeah, things run more smoothly. And and then the key demographic, which, of course, is middle-aged and older women, are pleased with the very peaceful, harmonious, not messy church. Because that's who grandma is. Grandma wants everything neat and tidy. And grandma's the key constituency. If you keep her happy, the money comes rolling in and the volunteers keep happening. So it's this is not some deep, dark conspiracy with starring Tom Hanks and the Illuminati <laughs> and everything. We're just responding to market incentives. And the market for Christianity is middle-aged and older women. Now, I do want to go down this path. Some guys who are against, quote-unquote, institutional religion, People who would get on their online dating profiles and put spiritual but not religious. You know, they've mm-hmm. basically gone universalist. 
would say, you know, everything that the Catholic Church came up with, everything even post-Reformation that was formed as a part of this Christian quote-unquote belief system, to be honest, every faith can be accused of this to some degree. I would challenge anybody listening to write me with an exception. That before there was a printing press, before there were people who could read the word themselves, there were people who slipped into the clergy, slipped into being part of the holy guys, who were motivated by other than holy things. Like back Uh in the Middle Ages, you know, the only way really to be educated if you weren't part of a royal family or part of the nobility in Europe was to become clergy. So this was the way to have power and wealth and be well-fed your whole life for the common man. So a lot of those guys came into the clergy and it's like, hey, you know what? And this is not necessarily me talking, but this is the train of thought that a lot of people who have turned their back on quote-unquote institutional faith might think is, you know, look, if you can keep somebody from having sex, you can keep them from doing anything. If you can keep them from eating for three days, well, then you can control them in just about any way. If you can get them to open their pocketbook and give you 10% of their money, well, then, hey, you own them. And if you can make them believe that they're going to physically burn for eternity after they die, well, then, my gosh, they're in your back pocket. They'll hang on your every word. What would you say to guys who think that and have kind of said to themselves nowadays, well, you know what? I just think it's all a mind control gig. I think these guys are just trying to keep me in my place so they can get my money and tell me what to do. And hey, it's the 21st century. We've got more information. We can study world religions. We can study social trends and we can study NLP and psychology till we're blue in the face. And for God's sake, we even got Joseph Campbell. So what's there left to believe? All these guys are just pulling our leg. What would you say to guys who are thinking that way and just writing off faith in general? Well, there's no doubt throughout history that really terrible things have been done in Jesus' name. But if you weigh the good against the bad, I don't see how any honest observer can honestly say that Christianity has been a negative force in human history. If you just look at a map of the world, And you see those areas where Christianity was the freely chosen religion of man, not imposed, but freely chosen. Those are the bastions of economic equality, of tolerance, of humanity, of charity. People live at the highest standard of living. The universities are the best. There's more equal distribution of food. There are hospitals. There are welfare programs. Everything we value about Western society has followed Christianity. Meanwhile, those areas of the globe where Christianity does not have a meaningful footprint, we're throwing gays off of buildings, we're executing people for small crimes. I mean, I'm not saying there's a one-to-one relationship here, but anybody who says that the church is just one big conspiracy to take my money doesn't know anything about the church and really hasn't gotten to know a lot of Christians. I know a lot of very heroic Christians who have put everything on the line and have foregone lucrative careers and have given everything to help others. And they're starting amazing ministries in urban centers. So the person who says, ah, Christianity is this big dodge to fleece the followers. Yes, we have a few wolves among the sheep. But really, you need to man up and check out Christianity for what it really is today and the amazing things that are being done in Jesus' name. And actually read the Bible instead of uh, listening to what the Huffington Post says about Christianity. Read the Bible yourself. It's an incredible story, an incredible call to action that uh, I don't think any man can resist once he understands what's really happening. Will the church figure this out? Will this get fixed? And if so, how? 
You know, this is not a new problem. Christianity feminized in the 12th century when bridal mysticism began to take over the Catholic Church. Men were taking more of a passive role in worship. They weren't allowed to sing. They weren't allowed to take the Eucharist themselves. You know, they passively had to stand there while the wafer was placed on their tongue. Everything was kind of a passive role. The Reformation brought a fresh burst of masculinity into the churches around the world starting 500 years ago. But then a church eventually began to feminize again. We just have this natural tendency to feminize over time. And I think the reason is, is because, again, if you look at the Bible, Jesus came into a culture that was ruthlessly masculine, very legalistic, crushing people under a list of man-made rules. And he brought in this fresh wind of the Spirit and said, you know, it's not about rules, it's about love. And you can follow that teaching all the way over into a very soft, mushy Christianity that has no backbone at all. Kumbaya, let's all just love one another while we pick posies in Jesus' name. And you can completely forget about the more militant side of the church. And I think that's where a lot of our liberal churches are going. And that's sort of the trajectory in society. I mean, people who don't know anything about Jesus but are quoted about Jesus will always quote him as some sort of a liberal peace activist who would never hurt a fly. You know, some celebrity. If Jesus was here today, he would uh, empty everyone's pockets and we'd all be poor together. You know, and they just don't understand that you have to balance this very soft lamb of God with the lion of Judah, especially if you're going to engage men in the church. It's crucial that we understand both sides of who he was and what he commands us to do. Now, David, I think there's an elephant in the room here. And if I don't bring this up, these guys listening are going to come at me with torches and pitchforks because I didn't. (laughs) It's this whole idea of sexual, quote unquote, sin vis-a-vis what God's plan is for us in the context of Christianity and indeed most world religions. More and more people nowadays in an increasingly liberal society are thinking, you know, I just have a really hard time believing God cares about my sex life that much. He gave me the plumbing I have and gave me the incredible power of being horny often. And it seems like he's made women the same way. And I just can't believe that going around and having lots of sex is this bad, sinful thing. That's one of those things that to a lot of guys seems like the mind control part. But be that as it may, it is probably the first thing that most people who would identify as Christians or even Muslims or any other religion that prohibits premarital sexual activity would forsake. It seems like it's the sin that really has no victim. (laughs) You know, I mean, if I kill somebody, if I steal something, if I use the Lord's name in vain or whatever, I can kind of resonate with that. But my gosh, you know, why did God make me so horny if I'm not allowed to do anything about it, especially given the prolonging of adolescence nowadays and nobody's even getting married till after graduate school? It just seems like an anachronism even to people who are Christians. And I can give you an example of what I mean. I went to a Christian liberal arts college in Pennsylvania. This is a not some place where parents send their kids to you know, it's kind of purgatory to train them to be Christians when they're acting up. It's not like military school. This mm-hmm. is the kind of college where kids go because they want to be Christians. They want to be there. Mm-hmm. David, I couldn't believe how horny the girls were. I mean, it's mm-hmm. almost like, hey, you know, this is extra tempting because it's so naughty. We're not supposed to be doing this. You know, the boys can't go in the girls' dorm. And I was one of those guys who was saving myself for marriage. I believed in the sanctity or whatever you want to call it of virginity until I was married at that time in my life. And I couldn't believe how many women were trying to ruin that for me. I think I met two girls in that whole school. Now, I'm talking about people who actually had sexual opportunity. You know, it's easy to be a virgin if 
if you don't have any sexual opportunity, right? But I think I met two girls in that entire school, and this is girls, not the guys, who were actually serious about keeping it in the holster. So nowadays, I would argue years after I've been graduated from college, I mean, it's been a couple decades, there's been this liberalization of sexuality in the world, really, but especially in our culture to the point where it's a foregone conclusion that God doesn't care about your sex life. The pressure is immense. The pornography is ubiquitous, free, and in HD. And frankly, every guy I know who's a Christian or identifies as a man of faith carries a lot of guilt over you know, his inability to stop looking at naked women in HD. So what would you tell guys relative to this whole idea of, hey, look, if the sexual thing is what's keeping you from going back to the church because you feel guilt about it or whatever, what can we do about that? How can we reconcile that? Should we be so hard on ourselves or is there forgiveness there or what do you tell those guys? Okay, well, well, you've got several questions in here. Let me take them one at a time. You betcha. (laughs) Fair enough. The ubiquity of porn is definitely a part of it. You have to understand that this generation of men is subject to more sexual stimulation than any generation in the history of humanity. I mean, 200 years ago, color printing didn't exist, so there was there were no magazines. And you really have to forward to 1950 before color images of nude women were even available. So we're talking about 60 years ago. And then with electronic media, film, television... Uh, We are subjected to daily images of women who are surgically enhanced, impossibly gorgeous. You can't check out at a grocery stand without seeing airbrushed models with, you know, enormous body parts that are just not natural. And so we're seeing a level of sexual temptation unprecedented in human history. Our brains are simply not wired to see this many gorgeous women all the time. So couple that with technological and medical innovations that have mitigated the risks associated with extramarital sex. For thousands of years, various STDs had no cure. Uh, Unplanned pregnancies could not be terminated. There was no oral birth control until the late 1950s, early 1960s. So all these technological advances have taken the risk away from extramarital sex. So Christians find themselves defending a shrinking island, as it were. We used to have a lot of reasons that you wanted to avoid sex, STD, unplanned pregnancy, the uh, lure of pornography wasn't there, but everything now is pushing men and women to have sex together. What I find interesting is the studies of young people and about their sexual activities are all revealing much less satisfaction with their sexual lives now that sex is widely available. I have a, a young friend that I know, she's in her 30s, young compared to me who posted this recently in her Facebook post, never has more sex been available and less love along with it. It seems like we're decoupling sex from love, and we're finding a lot of dysfunction, a lot of dissatisfaction. We're hearing many, many reports of young men unable to perform sexually because of their use of porn. So I would just say that the biblical sexual ethic still has relevance, that self-control in this area is still a very valuable thing, if you want to enjoy a satisfying, healthy uh, sexual relationship later in life. That's the ethic my wife and I practiced. We've been married 32 years, and we even today we enjoy a wonderful love life. You know, not to give too much detail on that, but just saying, you know, we did it that way and are enjoying the fruits of that now later in life. And so I would say to a young man um, that the biblical sexual ethic still has a great deal of validity 
even though we can mitigate many of the problems that used to be associated with sex, I think it's still worthwhile fighting for because the Bible does call us to do some extremely courageous things in all areas of our lives and to stay away from self-gratification. And if you choose that path, I think ultimately it will be to your benefit. I believe everything in the Bible is not for God's benefit. It's for ours, and it's there for a reason. Well, and if you're a guy who's avoiding church because of the guilt associated with your sexual past or some of the practices or, you know, maybe God's going to tell me not to fap anymore or whatever, you know, I can say, you know, that's one of the oldest deceptions. You know, that goes right back to the Garden of Eden, the whole idea that if you don't pluck this apple, that you've missed out on something. And so, you know, I would say to the guys that feel guilt or feel like they're going to come under condemnation, you're not. You know, go to any megachurch. You're not going to hear about sexual ethics, you know, or a condemning message from the pulpit. You know, that's one thing the megachurches have figured out. They figured out how to get guys to come. And that's one of the reasons they're mega. So, you know, if you felt condemned in your little church or whatever, you know, try one of these big megachurches and just sit there and be in a spectator for a while and just hear the gospel and, and hear the good news that you are loved. And that, you know, despite anything you may do or may have done, you know, you need to get in on what God is doing in this world. There's this great redemption process going on. There's this fight for good. And you need to be a part of that. What are the churches that are attracting men doing right, David? What's causing them to attract these guys again? Well, the megachurches have really kind of figured this out. The originators of the modern megachurch were two guys, one named Bill Hybels and the other named Rick Warren. And both of these guys in the 70s and 80s went door to door and they surveyed people and they realized the women and children were more than willing to come to church, but that the men were reluctant. And so without realizing it, both of them created mythical male parishioners. Uh, Hybels was called Unchurched Harry and Rick Warrens was called Saddleback Sam. Both of them targeted a man and they decided to create a church that a man would want to come to. Because they realized if they could just get the guy in the door and not go running out and disappear the next Sunday, which is what most guys do when they go to church. They try it once and they say, ooh, that wouldn't for me. If they can just get him to stay long enough to hear the gospel, the gospel will do its work. And the guy would bring his whole family. Of course, because when you get the man, you get the family and the deal. So what they did is they stripped the sanctuary of the quilts and the flowers and the banners. They didn't make people hold hands. They didn't make people say anything, sing anything, or sign anything. You could just kind of come and cross your arms and you know watch what was going on. And then slowly they would engage you in the life of the church. Men's hearts began to be touched by what they heard. And they realized, you know, there's a much bigger thing going on than my golf game or my GPA. Uh, there's a bigger story here than me getting ahead at work. And I want to be a part of that. I want to be a part of the thing that is making this world a better place. And that's been really the success of the megachurches. And I'm not saying that a church has to be big. Any church can implement these strategies. But you've got to create an environment where men will stay there long enough to hear about, you know, they hear the good news that, that church is not just about being a nice guy. It's about being a fighter for what's right. You know, what you're saying has brought something to mind for me. We had a guest on this show not too long ago who's one of my favorite guys. And I'm sure you've never met him before. If you did, it's a small world. But his name was Daryl Fulp. He's a dear friend of mine from college, and he is a Christian badass, is what he is, okay? <laughs> if you can juxtapose those two terms, I know he appreciated it. He and his wife, if you haven't listened to this episode, go back and look up Daryl Fulp, guys, if you're listening to this, because it was actually one of the most popular episodes we've had in the last year. He and his wife are basically the Mother Teresas of Guatemala. They have all the special needs kids, and you know they'll 
love them till they die in their arms and all that crazy stuff. But what I think separates Daryl from other guys and especially other Christian guys is Daryl will get in his Toyota Hilux pickup truck with a gun in his holster and he'll go out and brave the bandits and the mud and the torrential rainstorms to take a wheelchair out to a kid who's 50 miles out into the jungle because no one else will. And see, what I think about Daryl is that that is what a Christian man of faith looks like. He's not a passive observer in church wanting to be entertained by whatever they're doing there. He's a guy who's going out and quite literally manning up and having adventures because of his conviction and his character. I'm wondering, you know, how soft have guys allowed themselves to be vis-a-vis not really having to man up much anymore in this society? In defense of guys who don't go to Guatemala and drive 50 miles to deliver wheelchairs, not everybody's called to that. I mean, if everybody quit their jobs and followed Jesus tomorrow, we'd have economic turmoil, mass starvation, every business would close. (laughs) You know, we don't want everybody to do that. But everyone has a calling. And it's incumbent upon you as a man to figure out what that calling is, or you're going to waste your life watching porn and playing video games or playing fantasy football and two years forgetting who Peyton Manning was. You know, you're going to waste your life on something that doesn't matter. So the cool thing about the gospel is, is it's scalable. God calls every man to do something. And, you know, maybe it's just taking a guy out over coffee and having a really good conversation with him and asking, you know, I noticed you and your wife are having some problems. Well, my wife and I kind of bit the dust about three years ago, and here's what we did. And maybe you can save somebody's marriage, you know? You don't have to drive out into the wilderness in a four-wheel drive. You just maybe need to man up and have a serious conversation for once in your life with a guy who's in the ditch. That's the heart of what Christians do every day all over the planet. We're not content to just kind of, okay, uh, let's just watch video games and quote Zoolander all day. (laughs) There's a bigger adventure out there, and God calls every man to it. And the question is, are you going to get in on that adventure, or are you just going to waste your life doing dumb things? And for me, I'm just not content doing dumb things. I really want to invest it in something that makes the world a better place so that when I leave it, it's better than when I, than when I got here. Well, are the megachurches that you spoke of before, are they giving men these opportunities to be a strong man of adventure and a courageous guy and feeling a little bit more manly, for lack of a better way to put it? Are they doing an adequate job of that? Is that part of what's drawing them in? Because obviously, I agree with you. We don't all have to go out there and fight the bandits. That's not everybody's calling. It certainly isn't mine. Or is it really all part of the entertain me society? I mean, it goes back to, you know, the smells like teen spirit song by Nirvana. Generation Y and the millennials are like, hey, here I am, entertain us. And that's not going to be a long-term motivator for most men. That's part of what's lacking here from maybe the smaller churches and what the larger churches are doing, right, to grow? Well, here's the thing. The mega churches have just figured out that you have to set a masculine table or men won't eat. It's up to the men to eat. At least they're bringing men in. And once the men are in the door, they're hearing the word preached from a Bible. And honestly, if you want men's ministry where men are talking about real issues and getting over their porn addiction and standing up and being men and holding jobs and and these sorts of things— you're more likely to find that type of ministry in a megachurch than you are a small church, just because they have the size and the resources to hire a guy to handle those sorts of things. So, yeah, I think megachurches have not only figured out how to get guys to stay long enough to hear the gospel, but then they've also figured out that 
hey, these guys need specialized help because men's issues are different than women's issues. And in a mixed-gender Bible study, you can't turn to the group and say, you know, I'm struggling with porn, because the six women in the Bible study are going to get up and start calling you names. Women just don't understand how visually alluring this is. And so there needs to be this space where men can talk about men's issues within a gospel context and not be instantly rejected and tossed out of the city. What would you tell any guy who's struggling with this whole idea? He hates going to church, but he still considers himself to be a man of faith. He still considers himself to be a seeker, as it were. Some guy may even be agnostic. He may not even have an answer for what his faith even looks like. What would you tell him to encourage him? Well, first of all, if you consider yourself a man of faith, congratulations. I consider myself a bodybuilder, but I never go to the gym. You know, I consider myself a world-class bodybuilder with huge biceps and, uh, you know, thighs that can crush a, a concrete block, but I never go to the gym. You see, if you consider yourself a man of faith, I couldn't care less. The question is, are you exercising your faith? Faith is like a muscle. The more faith you have, the more faith you exercise, the stronger you become. So, you know, don't give me this spiritual but religious junk. If you're not out exercising your faith regularly, I don't have any time for you. But if you're in the battle, if you're in the fight, then let's talk. If you're encouraging other men, if you're creating spaces where kids can be protected from sex trafficking, if you're disciplining yourself, your mind and your heart, then you are a man of faith. And one of the best places to practice your faith is in a local church among other believers. Because the one thing that's absolutely clear, and as I look at what Jesus did, he never sent out one guy. He always sent them out two by two. And so if you're going to say, well, I'm just going to be the spiritual lone ranger and I'm going to have these warm feelings in my heart about God, and that's going to make me spiritual, oh, wow, like Oprah said, then I've got no time for you. You know, because you're, you're not a man of faith. You know, I'm not a bodybuilder because I don't go to the gym. And you're not a man of faith because you don't regularly associate with other men. Does it have to be in a formal church setting on Sunday morning? No. But you regularly got to hang out with dangerous men who are pushing back the kingdom of darkness. Then you're a man of faith. I think I've heard it put this way. Just because you're standing in a garage does not make you a car. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, you know, I, don't, I just don't have much time for these guys who are like, oh, yeah, I'm spiritual but not religious. Well, congratulations. You know, I'm a bodybuilder, but I don't go to the gym. <laughs> I love it. Man, you're a no BS guy. I love dudes like you. Must be the Alaska <laughs> thing and the Texas it must thing. Be. It must yeah. be. It must be. Anyway, you know, guys – what you've heard David say today is absolutely in line with what we talk about in all these other episodes where we're not necessarily talking about church, right? You're talking about being a man of character. You're talking about being a man of courage. You're talking about being masculine in the way women define it. Do you have a purpose in your life? You may call it a calling. You may call it a purpose. You can use whatever semantics you want to describe it, but you've got to be a man who's doing what he's put on earth to do. You've got to have a cornerstone belief system that's driving you that you do not falter from. At least, you know, you're not trying to falter from it at any chance you can get. You're trying to be a man of character. And, you know, you're courageous and you go about it. And the byproduct of that is high quality women of character find you incredibly attractive, which we all know the church doesn't teach enough of lately. David, you have a wonderful book called Why Men Hate Going to Church. And I want to urge every guy who's resonated with this conversation today to go out and grab a copy on Amazon. They can get it from your website too. And what are they going to find when they read that book? Is it basically more of the same of what we discussed today or, or what else can they find in that book? 
you grew up religious and then maybe when you were in your teens or 20s, you rejected the church, you're going to see why. You're going to see why church suddenly became so boring and irrelevant when you were in Sunday school. You're going to see why high school youth group drove you crazy. And I think you're also going to see why Christian women are so uh, different. Let's put it that way. So let's just leave it at that. There's some really salient points in there, and we did in the latest research. And yes, indeed, Christianity is a female-dominated religion. More than any other religion on the planet, there are more women than men involved. But that doesn't mean that we as individual men are not called to do the things Christ called us to do. We've got to step up and do those things because that's why we're here. That's why we were made. And uh, it answers the question why I'm here to that degree. And, and I think uh, it might give you the courage to actually begin your spiritual quest again, but not as a lone ranger, but with some other men who can really sharpen you. I remember distinctly the words of an old country preacher back in about the 1940s or 50s named Jim Rayburn who went on to go found Young Life. And he said, if you want kids to come to something, don't hold it on Sunday and don't call it school. Yeah, right. <laughs> Sounds like, you know, you're hitting it right down that fairway. Guys, go to www.thechickwhisperer.com front slash church. Let's just make it church. www.thechickwhisperer.com front slash church. Uh, take a look at what David Murrow is doing. It's very different. It's very refreshing. And David, thank you a million for joining us today. This has been an incredibly valuable conversation and it took some twists and turns I didn't expect. So bravo for that. Thanks. Thank you, Scott. And remember, gentlemen, if you're not already on my newsletter list, please go to www.thechickwhisperer.com and subscribe right away. I'll be giving you actionable advice that you can use on an everyday basis to improve your career path, strengthen your social circle, and of course, get better with women. Until I talk to you again real soon, this is Scott McKay from X and Y Communications. As always, be good out there. The Chick Whisperer Podcast is by X and Y Communications. All rights reserved worldwide. Be sure to sign up for the X and Y Communications newsletter at www.thechickwhisperer.com. This is Ed Roy Odom speaking for the Chick Whisperer Podcast.